Hello and welcome to The Dialogue Tree, a roundtable podcast with a difference. It's our guests that decide the topics for discussion. Each gets to take the floor for a few moments while we then engage in a more in-depth conversation about the topic they've chosen. As always, I'm Robin Smith, your host and moderator for today's show. So we should move on to the guests. First up, from GameSpot.com, senior editor and reviewer Kevin Vernord. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Hooray. Next up is managing editor, GamesRadar.com, Tom Magrino. Hey, Robin, how's it going? Once again, really well. And Sweet. Last, <laughs> and lastly, we have Giant Bomb's own bearded cyborg and newsman, Patrick Klepik. Hey, thanks for having me. That's and I'd right. ask you how you're doing, and then hopefully this time you're like, terrible. Oh, well, I, I, it, is, it is getting later by the second. and it's... Patrick, I had no idea you had a beard now. Uh, yeah, when I uh, shattered my collarbone a couple months back, I decided when I was going to be home, I'm going to huh. see what this facial hair thing is all about. And then yeah. when my wife says, stop looking like a pedophile, I'll shave it right. off. <laughs> and instead, instead she's like, oh, I kind of like it. So, so two and a half months in, you, I'm still rolling deep. How did you break the collarbone? I uh, hit a pothole going uh, 20 miles an hour or so on my on my bike and uh, oh, thrown off. Damn. Broke it in four places. Had surgery. Got a whole rigmarole. But I'm I'm on I'm on the mend. I'm, I'm mostly. I, I did okay the same now. thing uh, on on my collarbone. Also a bike. I feel like it might be that building and people who write news in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty common injury. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we should move on to our first topic and. I think, Tom, you should have the floor for this one. And do you want to talk about how we cover games? Yes. Um, God, I feel woefully underprepared for this. My big thing. So I used to be, uh, for a while, I was working at uh, GameSpot, as you all probably know. Um, but my, I was you know, a news writer, and our ethos on the news desk was we are objective newsmen trying to deliver the news uh, as you know, straightforward and unembellished and unpolished, or excuse me, very polished as possible. Um, and I feel like that thinking came down through basically my training. Like I, I wasn't a formally trained journalist, but I worked like Tor uh, and Fourth uh, Orson and Brendan Sinclair, who I who basically taught me how to be a human being. Um, they passed down those uh, kind of teachings. So that was my mentality on the game industry. It was very uh, stuffy and full of gravitas and whatever. And over the years, my opinions kind of evolved to the point where I now completely disagree with that way of covering the games industry. Um, I was looking at, uh, I think David Jaffe just had this almost uh, modest proposal-esque blog post the other day about Titled, My Proposed But Very Likely Half-Baked Way to Fix Game Journalism Criticism. And, I, and I, I'm not, at some point he said, am I fucking high? Which, I don't know, maybe. Uh, especially if you're if you're throwing out the idea that uh, reporters make well over $125,000 $100, a year. Which is quite comical. I mean, CBS pays pretty well, but not nearly as well as he not may think. Not nearly as well as that, no. <laughs> nearly well, you're, as well. you're, not, you're telling me you don't have diamond-encrusted pens? I don't. I don't. Uh, we barely make livable wages, especially living in San Francisco. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, he has this theory that, you know, we're only going to find, you know, the best of the best to really cover 
games journalism and, and do games right, and do games justice, and we're going to find the likes of, like, Ben Kuchera and Garnett Lee and all these other blowhards, and it's like... <laughs> Covering the games industry as if it actually matters is ridiculous. Um, we are covering an industry that is entertainment-based, and to cover it uh, any other way is just disingenuous. And I feel like any time that uh, so-called good reporting or really investigative reporting or uh, any of that kind of stuff happens, not only is it completely unnecessary and only only should reside in academia it's it's not wanted by our audiences like i've written well i'm not me i know people brendan excellent example brendan Clare has written excellent features in the past that are very well thought out and put together and they get like four four page views <laughs> and for like the week he spent doing it and then a games radar uh will put out a list of like top top assholes seen in uh, metal gear and just pictures of people's butts and people like that. <laughs> they, they come and see it. That's what they want. Um, that's a terrible list. We shouldn't write that list. <laughs> you might. I don't know. Kevin, you suggested when, when Hollander Cooper was on your show, <laughs> you suggested a couple good lists and we're like, Oh shit, we should cover I, that. That's I made a good them list. up. I mean, the whole thing yeah. was he was supposed to guess which was real and which was an actual headline on right. uh, games radar. So yeah. But I guess, long story short, the idea, we, we are covering an entertainment medium. We should be light and humorous about it. We shouldn't take ourselves seriously. This idea that we should be good journalists um, is preposterous to me and only belongs in uh, an academia setting. Like, if you want to really improve the, I don't even know what the point would be. Improving a lot of game designers, developers, what? I have no idea. Anyway, that's my spiel. So, Patrick, anything you want to say about that? Oh, man, I've been wasting a lot of my life, apparently. <laughs> we all have, <laughs> sir. Um, I, well, I, so that's a very you know, that's a very broad cross section of criticisms or or examinations of games journalism, if you want to put that in quotes, uh, games criticism, games writing. Uh, one thing I would say is that uh, when you put out like you know, you know Brendan, who does write um, some really excellent features uh, that, that maybe didn't find an audience uh, a GameSpot, but I think uh, the new publication he's at, you know, Games Industry Biz, he's writing pretty equivalent features, and they're finding a really receptive audience. Um, so I think part of the the issue you bring up has a tangent that is the audience that you are writing for, um, the kind of audience that comes to a GameSpot, the kind of audience that comes to a Giant Bomb kind of audience that comes to a games industry biz or a Gama Sutra. Uh, these days, there's a huge wide spectrum of uh, websites and what they cover, and a lot of the kickback or lack of interest usually comes from what the audience expects that publication to do. And it's why Stephen Titslow has found uh, a lot of frustration uh, doing more serious subjects at a place like Kotaku, which uh, under Brian Cushente, uh not that they didn't do some uh, serious work, uh, but, but largely, you know, you had... Uh, a much more playful atmosphere. Um, you know, Brian Ashcraft, um, who is a common source of criticism over there for, for some of his old Japan is wacky posts. Um, that audience kind of expects something less serious. And then when there are a lot of stories uh, from, you know, critics like Patricia Hernandez or Kirk Hamilton uh, or Lee Alexander that touch on, you know, misogyny and, and other subjects, 
um, you get a lot of kickback from the audience. So I think there is an audience expectation that that plays into the response. Um, I would yeah, also I mean, yeah, go ahead. Just to address that point, it's like that is totally true. Like there is an audience issue there, and I, I guess the big issue for someone trying to make money in this business, like us, like we need to be paid to do this work to you know, live. That audience is so small that it's kind of like the only really way to do it is in your spare time, it seems like, because you're never really going to hit a, uh, I don't know, a critical mass with your uh, with your feature to justify, at least from a financial perspective or a business perspective, uh, the time spent on it. Do you think then that abandoning more serious topics for discussion on websites like Giant Bomb or GameSpot is completely appropriate when maybe you could use them as an opportunity to say one out of every 10 or one out of every 100 even um, subjects you bring up is a more serious one because you've gotten the attention of those people who may not normally read articles of that type. Uh, I've never found somebody who is who's coming to say GameSpot for a review of Mass Effect Three, having any interest in reading about the uh, romance options or the the homosexuality romance options in Mass Effect Three. They want to know if it's good or not. They want to know if they should buy it, if it's worth their time or money. Um, whether or not they'll stick around, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I mean, so. I, I, I think it's also that the, the audience has not been trained to expect uh, a lot of decent writing in those avenues. You know, we're, we're only just started in the last couple of years to have a lot of uh, any attempts at writing that goes outside of is this game good or is this game bad? Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of this is training audiences and then finding ways to monetize that. I mean, I think if, you know, there are two separate discussions here like if we want to go down the rabbit hole of getting obsessed over how you make money over stuff like that that's mm-hmm. that's a, a above my pay, pay grade and b i'm not really interested in um you know i i'm fortunate enough to work at a site like giant bomb where i can tackle serious subjects because our bread and butter is video um so i was brought on to to go after things like this and so i don't really have to worry about the business side and i can worry about is this interesting is this pushing my audience to think about something from a different angle, even if it's uncomfortable or they're going to harshly disagree with my stance. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being contrarian, uh, not to be devil's advocate, but because I know that large parts of my audience are going to disagree with me. Um, and, and I think it's, if we're going to say that we're only going to talk about uh, games in a lighthearted way, then we're going to suddenly be ignoring large swaths of games that are being made now that you can't talk about in that way. I can't write about Depression Quest, uh, a game that attempts to uh, produce empathy for people who don't experience depression to understand what it's like to experience depression or have the disease of depression in a lighthearted way. There's no way to do that. Um, I can't talk about a lot of these twine games that deal with like really serious subjects in terms of misogyny and sexual assault in a, in a lighthearted way. So I, w- I wouldn't want to paint with too broad a brush over how we should be dealing about the topics of video games when uh, I feel like that is talking about a very narrow segment of video games that is becoming less and less relevant in terms of interesting conversation. Well, that sort of comes to me, too, to the idea of... of so there's always this discussion of whether games are art and so on and so forth, and it, it sort of... 
I mean, my feeling on it is is that uh, if we expect games to start tackling, um, you know, tougher subjects, I, I look at something like um, Bioshock Infinite and, and how much has been written about that game. Um, you know, we can't, you know, we can't expect so much of our games if we're also not willing to to look at them through that lens. Um, it, it, but I think Patrick's right about about the audience, um, and I think it's okay for a particular publication to say, hey, we're not right. We're not trying to write for everybody. We're only going to write something that we've got passion for and hope that people that have the similar passion will then be will then be on board. So I, I look at something like Polygon and, and they're they're sort of focusing on that kind of thing, right? More than a lot of other sites do. And I don't know whether or not it's going to ultimately, you know, pay off for them or pay the bills. Um, but they're they're certainly taking a different tactic, which is they're taking things very seriously there. Um, as opposed to, say, that one segment at Kotaku that seems to sort of stand out versus, you know, as Patrick said, the thing that, say, Brian Ashcraft would post. So it's, I think it's yeah. more about the, the identity of the, the publication um, hmm. as, as much as it is about the actual content. Well, it's Wait. interesting, too, because it's like, if, like, do you really feel like there's a value? Like, there is definitely a value, in, uh, and this is to address Patrick's point, there's definitely a value in having those games that you mentioned, but is there any value in, in you writing about them? I mean, I yeah. I, if I, showed like I can see the, that there's value in having them made, but do you sure. feel like you need to interpret it for the audience? Yeah, I mean, because I think part of my role, I mean, I, I, I serve multiple roles, right? Like some people are, you know, uh, are critics, some people are reviewers, some people are journalists, like... There, people kind of like put us on this big umbrella of journalists when I think there's much more nuance there, but that's, you know, that is its own discussion. But, um, I think part of the role of being a critic is being able to play a work, um, art conversation aside, but just play, play, play a game, interpret an experience and articulate that for the audience, what that means. Like what, what did they feel? It doesn't mean we're all good at that or that even I'm good at that, but, like, for example, when I recently wrote about Depression Quest, and my angle for that was through a member of Giant Bomb that reached out, had a very powerful emotional reaction, and then allowed me to anonymously tell their story about uh, living with depression through the lens of this game, and then also talking to that designer. The response I got from that was uh, largely private, but the people that... Uh, responded to it, responded to it in, in a very powerful way. And the other, you know, less on the, you know, empathetic emotional end, let's swing to the other side of the equation, which would be a game like Monster Hunter, um, which I spent a lot of time recently trying to understand. I'd never played that series uh, seriously. I'd never spent a lot of time with it. I kind of just brushed it off as, oh, Japan. Um, but then the new one that just came out, I wanted to spend... I wanted to, if I was going to dislike it, I wanted to dislike it for reasons I could articulate. I wanted to dislike it on my own terms. And so I spent like 12 hours kind of getting over the hump, did this quick look that people really responded to, and then had this kind of like gnawing feeling that I wanted to write it down. Because there's a difference between a video that shows here's how this game is interesting, here's how this game works, and then writing writing that down. It's a different experience for, for me. And I wrote this piece that tried to articulate or encapsulate what the Monster Hunter experience is and how that ties into its various mechanics. And the response to that was amazing as well because you had all these people that had never touched that series before and went, oh, you know, that doesn't sound appealing to me, but I now get why <laughs> I, I, but they, but, but I get why people are having fun with it. That's really cool. And so mm -hmm. I think 
there is a role to play in that, uh, and how you play that role, um, you know, depends game to game. And, and again, what your audience is and what your publication's goals are, um, and, th- and that's, you know, that, or also, you know, what you want to do and what you, what you're good at yeah. as a writer. Um, I, I think, I, just to add, no, I'm sorry about that. I, just okay. to add, too, I mean, I think that there are, there are plenty of game makers out there that understand that what they make is by very nature going to have a limited audience. And I think it should be okay for us as writers to understand that if, if we want to dig deeply or if we want to get um, pretty analytical, that by nature, maybe what we're writing um, is not going to be as broadly appealing, but I think that we need to be okay with that. Just as much as, like, say, a game like I Get This Call Every Day is going to be appealing to a relatively small number of people, but I think that should be allowed. He should be able to say, this is what I have to say with my game, and I know that not everybody's going to take to it, but I'm I'm okay with that. I think it should also be okay for us to say, hey, I want to dig deeply into, I don't know, music in this particular game, MMO, which is by very nature, not a lot of people are going to read that. But I've I've still written articles like that because I'm interested, and I have to assume that if I'm interested out there, maybe somebody else is too. Maybe not tons, maybe not thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, but you know, somebody out there might might find value in that. Mm. And I'm okay if it's just a couple people. With regards to writing more serious or articles about games over on a more serious topic. Do you find that there is often an extreme negative reaction to any of these articles? Um, do you think that any of these reactions, although personally I wouldn't believe so, are at all grounded, that, that they have a right to be reacting negatively to seeing a more serious article on, on a website they expect a less serious or more lighthearted thing on? Sure. People... Um... <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of flashing back to some of the uh, editorials that um, Laura Parker would write for GameSpot because uh, she had a she had a crazy ability for tapping into something in the audience to get them talking, and um, I can distinctly recall just her getting slammed for some of the topics that she would pick, um, and just really really nasty stuff. Uh, whether or not that's called for, is that the question? Uh, to an extent, yes. I mean, I, I don't ever think personally that, you know, any of the things I've read that have been hyper-negative have ever been really called for, but yeah. that could I just mean, it's, be based it's, in people's prejudices. And is I have that... a hard time uh, taking seriously anything I read in the mm. comment section of any website ever, <laughs> just because it's it's never entirely clear to me whether the view that someone is uh, espousing in a comment section is like how they actually feel or whether they're just 12 years old and get a hard on by, you know, saying the most offensive thing they can. Mm-hmm. So to me, to me, I find how people respond to my work uh, or anyone else's work to just largely be irrelevant. People do respond though. And I think part of that is sometimes it just comes down to the usual people hold a certain game in their minds as some kind of sacred cow that's above that. But you'll even see this in reviews comments where it's like, well, is it fun? That's all I care about. They don't care about anything beyond, did you have a fun time while you were playing that game? And, you know, my general response would be, most games are fun. You know, I can go to almost anything, even bad things, and find some kind of entertainment value in it. Um, but people will still, you know, they don't want to see anything deeper a lot of the time. They're just like, well, all I want to know is whether you had fun. 
while that's while that's true, like I'm thinking uh, to um, uh, what's uh, Patricia Hernandez wrote that Call of Duty to Black Ops or Black Ops to review whenever that game came out. It was talking about like Saddam Hussein and like all this other stuff, and it's like the level of thought there. Like I, I guess the criticism that is in those types of things and whether they're they're one of the comments on that was just like, all right, this is cool, but is this game fun? Should I go buy it? Um, I think you get that kind of reaction when you put forward a, a level of criticism that isn't, it just doesn't really make sense or it kind of rings hollow or they're the, it's, not good, I guess. Like, you're not getting the same level of criticism that you'd see in, say, like a Roger Ebert movie review, where that guy is very well-read, and he's pulling in a lot of uh, a lot of actual uh, literary theory um, or filmic theory into um, his review, and it just kind of... He's making a point with his criticism that is worth making, I guess. Um so I, I think that there is that difference. Okay. We should roll on from this. We've gone on for a while. Um, so let's move on to Kevin. We were talking about uh, Bioshock earlier so, and criticisms. So yeah, um, the reaction it, to Bioshock since it's been reviewed. It's, it's interesting because this, I feel like this sort of follows along with exactly what we've been talking about because one of the things that's been on my mind is – um, sort of the the gap between initial reactions to Bioshock, because of course the reviews come out and the and the game um, was hovering close to a ten on Metacritic for for a while. It's since I hate it's weird to think that a game has softened to a nine point five um, critical <laughs> consensus at this stage. Um, and what was interesting is when I wrote my review, I thought that um, you know I could potentially be highballing it because on one hand I actually enjoyed the act of playing Bioshock Infinite more than I actually enjoyed the original Bioshock, but I think the original Bioshock is a more important game, if that makes sense, even though I actually like Bioshock Infinite mm. more, but I actually thought I would be on the high end of things. And then when, you know, when I, I gave the game a, what I think is a super high nine, and then suddenly I'm getting accusations of lowballing it, and then, of course, within a week, you know, a lot of deeper, um, more challenging, you know, criticism came out, outside of the reviews that had a lot to say and really, I don't want to say tore the game apart, but certainly pulled it apart and looked at all of its themes, looked at all of what the game had to say, um, especially in regards to things like whether the gameplay matched the setting, whether the, the themes of the game in terms of racism and nationalism were actually explored properly or as deeply as, as the, uh, the initial reviews would have you believe. And so I just think it's really interesting, and I wanted to bring up the subject of that initial reaction to Bioshock Infinite, which was um, perhaps even hyperbolic to some people versus a more measured approach to the game that's, that seems to be happening now, or even uh, sometimes what looks to me like a largely negative reaction from, from some places. So, Tom, are people coming down from a high? Um, man, so I have not been following this at all. Uh, <laughs> I have... I have played uh, about three hours of Bioshock Infinite. I found it to be a totally cool game, but um, but I mean the idea that it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like when you think about how there is typically a, 
swing in the way people have reactions. Like everybody is very positive um, and they get caught up in the enthusiasm and then kind of there's a cooling down process that takes place. Um, Cause I think one of the things about Bioshock infinite was in many ways it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like when you're going and seeing an open house and it's an open house that a developer like has flipped and you've got like these very nice touches on it um, and you're kind of wowed by the touches, but then you buy that house and then you move in and you're like, wow, this is made of, you know, cardboard, not solid Oak. <laughs> um, it, it's just one of those things where like the, the more time you spend with something, the more you're going to understand and get the feel for the texture of it. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't surprise me that people would have, would be wowed by its initial flourishes that were um, very eye catching mm. um, and kind of the, the, the type of story that that game tells, you're not, especially in AAA, you're not going to get anything close to that. Um, but then, yeah, as time goes on, people are just going to be like, well, actually. Wait. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Tom touches on a good point of uh, there is sort of a cycle of how uh, critical response happens. And I don't think it's a shock that some of the more uh, thoughtful meditations on, you know, its depictions of racism, uh, and, and other such elements uh, are coming up weeks after the game's release, where you have um, a much wider spectrum of people playing to the game, responding to the game, having conversations about the game, and then having this feeling of, ah, I've got to try and put these feelings into words. Um, you know, and uh, it's, I think it's a sign of a great work, and great does not necessarily mean good or bad, but it's a sign of a great and ambitious work when it provides uh, an avenue uh, for conversations like this. So whether or not you think Bioshock Infinite is a good game or bad game or uh, manages to execute upon um, you know, some of the, the touchier subjects that it, it jumps into, um, it has been a great platform for really interesting conversations to happen around how games can uh touch upon these subjects so in, in that regard like it's great that bioshock infinite exists because these conversations uh, would not have happened uh, without it um and so um i've i've, I've been you know i've really enjoyed uh, reading them and i really enjoyed reading them because they've gotten me to think about the game in a context uh, that i certainly wasn't thinking about when i played through the game uh initially because a lot of times when you're playing through a game you're very focused on the mechanics. You're very focused on the combat. You're trying to figure out where the story's going, um, and it's not until you know someone takes the time to maybe write you know a thousand words about uh, you know what this game says uh, about you know the plight of African Americans and how it t- chooses to touch upon slavery uh, that you think about, wow, yeah, you know what, you know, you start connecting the dots based on your own playthrough and your own emotional responses you had uh, in a way that you didn't necessarily consciously have the, the first time around. And I think that's, uh, I think there's always going to be a bit of a disconnect between uh, the initial flood of reviews and what their agenda and purpose is um, versus uh, more broad criticism or more nuanced criticism that, that occurs in, in the weeks after uh, a works release. Yeah, that's totally a great point. Cause it's like that first wave of, uh, of criticism from the actual critics themselves. It's, uh, to me, at least, that is the wave that says, should you buy this game or should you not, not buy this mm-hmm. game? Like, the question of, uh, is it a 9 or a 10? Like, yes, whatever, go buy this game, because it's awesome. Um, after that initial wave, uh, you get into the actual criticism, 
And at that point, like, because the game is uh, nuanced enough and has enough going for it, um, that it sustains, you know, it sustains itself when it is held up to scrutiny. It doesn't even matter, you know, if it's a 9 or a 10. It's like it's already been judged as a great game just because you can have these conversations. Um, with regards to the game and having completed it, I know, Patrick, you've mentioned playing through it. And I know Kevin definitely has finished it at least once. Um, have you gone back to it? And and have any of your opinions or thoughts about the game technically or narratively changed at all since you've gone back to it? I'm more. I'm certainly conscious. I mean, I've played it three times now, mm. so I'm I'm conscious of how other people are reacting to it. Um, but I'm also conscious of what I feel is is. Um, there are times where I read something and I and I feel almost as though there's a willful overlooking of certain elements in favor of others. And I guess that's in a way what criticism is anyway. You choose what's most important to you as an individual to talk about because that's that's what you know made its mark for whatever reason but as i play even though i'm i'm more and more conscious of of what other people have said and i and i can see why as i play through again and again but on on the other hand um i'm i'm just as confident as i ever was in how i feel personally about the game so sometimes you can go back to something and and this has happened before and and uh you know you try to avoid it as a critic but i think it's almost impossible to to run into here and there, which is you go back to something that you loved, you play it again, and you wonder what the heck it is that you loved, um, you know, or, or you go back to something that you didn't like and think, oh my god, I'm actually having some fun now. Was I wrong the first time around? But this is this is one of those occasions where, you know, going back has only sort of, you know, I, I felt just as confident in what I had to say each time through, um, which isn't something that that always happens. So. I don't know. Like, I feel like every time I play that game, I find something new thematically that that impresses me, um, and and not just in the production elements, which a lot of people find out. But actually, I would actually stand up for the gameplay in that game, where a lot of people would not. So a lot of people have been very critical about the gameplay and the way it fits in the setting and the narrative, where where I actually think it's it's more successful um, than than is cer- certainly currently um, on people's minds. But mm. I don't know. I've, I've every time I go back, I, I enjoy myself, and I and I feel like I can pretty well articulate why that is. I I haven't had a chance to to go back yet, but um, and I probably won't because uh, games are too long uh, for for that sort of thing, or at least how that fits. Really in. long, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not necessarily advocating for the, the games should be shorter, but uh, it, the the, right. the structure of games, the way the games are sold. Uh, as $60 entities, and thus there is a built-in expectation that they are going to be a certain length, um, makes it very difficult uh, to go back multiple times to engage with the game in in any game in, in a way that I would like to. Um, I just, you know, I read a lot of books, I watch a lot of movies, I engage in a lot of other media, um, or I'm d- doing other things out in life, and I just don't, I don't have time uh, to sit and play a game two or three times, even though I'd like to. Um, and, you know, maybe part of that is because part of my job requires me or I feel like part of my job requires me to play uh, as many things as possible. And so I, I find myself moving on to the next thing. And the way I re-experience the game is through thoughtful criticism that people write, uh, which allows me to take that playthrough that I had, internalize that, and then examine it from a different angle 
uh, through the way people talk about it, through the way people write about it, uh, because games as they are structured now, um, you know, if it was possible for me to just pull up a list of sequences in Bioshock Infinite and just jump into ones that I thought were important and sort of break the game structure, uh, that would allow me to, to maybe engage with that in a way that I can't currently. Um, but yeah, the, the way games are structured, I, I, I tend to not find myself playing them multiple times and instead, like I said, uh, sort of re-experiencing them through, through people's, uh, you know, responses after, after they play it themselves. You know what I just started to do? I, I started to go and watch Let's Plays more often for exactly that specific reason. Because something about being able to just watch somebody else play, like I know it's not the, like, the ideal way to play a video game or experience a video game, but for me at least that is a way to relive or remind myself or look deeper into a game that I otherwise wouldn't like sit down and play again. I've found that some of the comments I've had via people I know personally, have been geared mainly towards just the playing of the game. For example, one person felt negatively towards the combat. Not that the the combat was bad, but that at times it felt like it was a meat grinder, that there was too much being thrown at them. Um, And my other half, she, she mentioned to me that while looking back at the trailers leading up to the game, she she saw them and then reflected on the game and just said that that's the game I wanted to play. Not that the game was bad, but that maybe she'd been shortchanged somehow. And can you see where there may be grounds for people to feel that way, say if they feel they've been misled or expected something else, and that's why a negative reaction may be coming through this way? Is it is it that, and I'm just kind of guessing here, like mm. you... You go. You have this experience, the the storyline that is very mature, and then there's this element of crassness that's uh, introduced to it with the the whole shooting and the gameplay element. Is that? I can't speak for them myself directly, but um, I mean, I she, mean she's a, she's a fan of the first Bioshock, so I mean, because she, when she you... knows what to expect. Yeah. But it was almost like she expected something. A little more intellectual, a little less heavy-handed with the, the the shooting elements, and could sometimes those elements be a bit of a turn-off for people who do want to experience the more thoughtful and intellectual side of it if they're too heavy-handed. Uh, I don't know. I w- so we were GDC happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, was that? Has that really been a couple of weeks ago? Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Um, and I was at a panel that, um, trying to remember what it was, um, or who was there. It was like the, the, the guy, somebody at WB, Warner Brothers, uh, who works on Arkham City. And he was talking about um, how you find your audience and like the different types of audiences that are out there. You have the, what he called the connoisseurs, which were about 15% of the gaming audience um and those are the people who play everything they have a very refined palette um and they're they're just on top of it uh, and then you have the bro gamers which are the 60 percent element um and those guys only play the best of the best and to hit uh the right sales numbers that justify making your 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 product you have to create a game that uh, appeals to both the bro gamer and the connoisseur. 
Um, so I'm wondering if it's kind of the concessions that they have to make uh, to to get you know the 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 frat the frat guy who just wants a good shooter, um, and those kind of concessions that uh, might be a little perverting the experience for her. I don't know. Anybody else want to weigh in? Well, I think Tom's right that there's a, that game does suffer from a little bit of, um, you know, being aware of an audience and trying to appeal to it as opposed to sticking closely to what it knew it was doing best. Um, but sometimes I think it's, it's okay to do that. And I, I didn't have the same reaction others did. I actually felt it's a much more cohesive experience than others thought, but then again, I always felt that the original Bioshock, you know, if you could if you could look at some of these problems, suffered from some of those same, you know, same ideas. So I don't think Infinite's actually is radically different from the original Bioshock um, as as some others do, in the sense that things that you can point to in Infinite as being a problem could you could probably point to Bioshock as having some of the same elements. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> So we'll move on to our last topic, last but not least. Uh, Patrick, the future of Nintendo. Yeah, well, I'm glad uh, I was going to change it, but then you got, we've been so serious the last two that I think we might end on something <laughs> a little bit like hearted. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, we, there was a uh, Nintendo Direct this past week where it was very 3DS focused. Uh, sales numbers uh, coming out for the Wii U the last two months have been uh, pretty poor. Um, so Nintendo as a company seems like they're, you know, once again finding themselves um, with their backs against the wall. I mean, they're certainly not a company that you ever count out. And they're actually, I find it most fascinating to watch Nintendo when everyone else has written them off and everyone is telling them to go third party. And the conventional wisdom is that, oh, if you just go do what Sega did seven years ago, it'll it'll work out for you because it really worked out for them. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious what, what people think about where they see that company going, you know, if you woke up tomorrow in, you know, Iwata shoes, what what would you do with that company to help them maintain uh, relevance, or if that's even something they need to do in the future? I mean, my own personal take on it is that Nintendo finds themselves in a GameCube-like uh, situation where they didn't have that magical hook like they did with the original DS and and the Wii. Um, that they tried some things and they had some really interesting ideas, but it just did not capture the audience in the way they have in the past. But the thing that Nintendo has that Sony doesn't have, that Microsoft doesn't have, um, is that they have these really amazing franchises that uh, people have a deep affinity for on a Disney-like level. They have emotional reactions to them. And that while they may not have the mainstream success uh, in the next couple of years, uh, that they'll be able to double down on these franchises, weather the storm, uh, just commit to their fan base, uh, and that because they have such a big war chest, they have a lot of money. So even when they're losing money, you know, as they have the last year or two, uh, they have a ton of money that they don't talk about. They have an enormous war chest um, that that gives them time to start looking at the market and thinking, all right, this this stuff didn't work this time, but we've got this audience that we're going to sell to, and they will buy everything because they have before, and they probably will again. Uh, and they can work on what is that thing, uh, you know, three or four years from now uh, that's going to catch everyone by surprise. So uh, my feeling on that is probably a uh, there is no other Nintendo console after the Wii U. Uh, there is a unified 
a handheld that connects to your TV through an Apple TV-like interface, and that it is a Nintendo machine. They finally tell third parties to go F off, um, and it is, it is strictly a machine you buy uh, to play Nintendo games, uh, and they really kind of lean into that toy and fun aspect that uh, they can do uh, better than, than almost anyone else. Tom? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, every time that Nintendo finds it's like... It seems like for Nintendo to try to compete with uh, Microsoft and Sony in this arms race is is foolish. Like they will fail, um, and I th- and I think that they're they invented so many genres. Like they invented the platformer or popularized, invented whatever uh, the the action adventure. They they have basically a good entrant in all of these various genres. And I think what Nintendo Nintendo needs to get away from this idea that we need to do something radically new and different and uh, just blow everyone's minds. What they need to do is just do what people like. <laughs> like people <laughs> like like I hate I I personally hate like all of the Mario after Mario after Mario, eight Marios a year, but it works for Nintendo because of their fan base. Um, and it's it's not really that people are responding, I think, to Mario. I think it's that they invented these genres, like they laid the groundwork. Um, and then with with that kind of, everybody has this, this notion of what a Mario game is. And that's great because it, it's easy for people to grasp. And what they do really well is like, they, they give people new and innovative, innovative ways to interact with a Mario game, um, like Super Mario Galaxy 2 or something like that, where they like they take that formula and then just turn it on their head. And people love that stuff, like uh, this that Nintendo Direct. Um, if, if Microsoft said, hey, guys, and we got Gears of War 4 coming out, uh, people are like, really, guys? More Gears? Um, but with Nintendo, it's like... And we got a Zelda that's the same Zelda that you played 20 years ago, only later time period. People are like, yes, that's exactly what we wanted. Um, that to me is crazy. And I feel like for Nintendo to disregard that is very foolish. And I, and I think they're done kind of like the, the release of Earthbound. I think we have an editorial going up on this um, sometime soon. But the release of Earthbound, I feel like, is a very significant uh, bellwether for where... Um, Nintendo is at right now because that is a game that you do not release if your interest is uh, people's grandmas, people's girlfriends, people's whoever. Like that is a core game being released for core gamers, and that to me is an indication that Nintendo is like, you know what, we're tired of like trying to expand or expand the core into you know these brave new places. We're going to give you guys who really love what we do, the things you want. I'm putting a period on that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just away for a second. Uh, Kevin, anything you want to say about that? I, gosh, I don't even know what I can add that, that's not already been said. Um, I, it's funny because I've, I've never been um, a Nintendo person by nature as much as other people. I mean, there was a... I, at the time where people just loved Nintendo, um, I was I was playing PC games for so long, um, and and dabbling in, in in other ways that I that I sort of never developed the nostalgia for Nintendo that a lot of other people have. Dude, and I'm so, right there with you. I cannot stand the platformer genre at all. Sorry, go on. Oh, you monster! <laughs> <laughs> I like platformers, but my my problem when it comes to Nintendo is 
if if I'm you know, do I really need a Nintendo platform to get these particular games when I can get games that are they may not be Mario and they may not have that exact sense of uh, maybe not that sense of Nintendo joy and that Nintendo um, sweetness and, and, and whatnot that exists in, say, Mario. But, you know, essentially, a lot of the times I feel like I can more or less get a game of the same quality on another platform um, and probably even enjoy it more. When I when I play Mario, I just feel like I'm playing a fun platformer, but then I can go and play a fun platformer somewhere else. Um, and then when I go and play something like Zelda, after playing a bunch of Zelda-esque games since then, like, you know, if, if I go and play Okami or if I go and play even something like Darksiders 2, and then when I go and play Skyward Sword, I'm like, this game thinks I'm the stupidest person on Earth, and I hate this game. Um, and that was that was the, the reaction I had to playing Skyward Sword, is it thought I was a moron. And it... it it really stood in opposition to what I actually felt like early Zelda was. And that's that's something that actually really got to me. I felt like I can get a, an experience like this if I want to play, you know, I can go play Okami and get what I think is a much better Zelda game than any recent Zelda game, if that makes sense. And so that's that's why I mean, like, I, you know, I've, because I don't have that nostalgia, I don't particularly have that that tie to needing Nintendo to do one thing or another. I just want cool, great games. And I'll always buy a game system because I want cool, great games. But there are times where I'm like, you know, I don't know, like I bought a GameCube not for the, you know, not for the Nintendo stuff. I bought a GameCube because I wanted to play Eternal Darkness to give you an idea. And, and, you know, I wanted to play Animal Crossing too, but Animal Crossing was a brand new IP. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just, hey, I'm going to revisit Mario again, something I've, I've already done a bunch of times already. Um, and I wish actually there was more of that. I'm actually most excited about Pikmin 3, possibly than anything else, because it's been like, oh my god, it's been so long since we've had Pikmin. Uh, you know, how many Mario parties do we really need, and is that really what's going to sell Nintendo consoles? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, actually, my favorite game on the platform right now is Lego City Undercover. <laughs> so... I think I love about nin- uh, Nintendo... Uh, even when I'm not a big fan of the games that they're putting out, is that uh, they're not cynical, they're not exploitative, uh, at least not in the in the sense that I feel like you see a lot of the angst uh, from people who play games uh, in terms of you know DRM and like the DLC and and all this other stuff that has risen out of business models that have come from uh, a lot of the other traditional sectors. Uh, Nintendo comes to a lot of that stuff late, you know, digital sales, DLC, but when they do it, it always comes from this, this, it feels like it comes from a place of how can we give something to the player uh, that, that is going to enhance their experience. And when I play their games, there is no cynicism, there's no weird exploitation. And like the fact that this is a major company that produces hardware platforms and they're not one of those companies. They may not always get it right. They may not be making the games that you want, but I think it's important that that company exists and is trying to make money in that way. I think that's important. I think that's part of the reason why people, you know, put so much trust in Valve, even when, you know, Steam yep. is this giant form of DRM that everyone pretends doesn't exist, but absolutely is DRM <laughs> in the form that you get angry about with many other companies. But you trust Valve, and 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 people have that intrinsic trust of Nintendo even over the years when they make games that, you know, you'd rather they just doubled down and made these core games for you. 
But the reason that people get frustrated with Nintendo is because they're surprising, like because they'll go and do something else and then come back around and do the thing that you love. And I think it's important that a company like that exists. And I, and I, and I hope they're around and I hope they're producing their own hardware platforms because I don't want them to become like Sega. Uh, because I think Sega was also a company who was philosophically their, their hardware and software design were intertwined. And I think it's, Nintendo is that company as well. And you take hardware, hardware away from Nintendo and you take away a core tenant of, of how their games uh, get made, uh, whether that era uh, is making games that you end up, you know, beloving or not. Do you think, though, that this sort of lack of cynicism also frustratingly comes with a, a lack of growth in places where you really want to see it? Um, you know, on, on one hand, you know, the, the Miiverse is great and all, but on the other hand, I sometimes it's really nice to just have a really easy way of connecting with people and inviting people and looking at friends lists and so on and so forth. And I, there are times where I wonder, like, does it, do we really need to have um, so many things that make me just want to slam my head against the wall sometimes? It's like, why, why does it have to be done this way when there has been so much in the last 10 years that's shown us that there can be actually a friendly, easier way? And the thing that always probably irritates me most about that is coming from Nintendo, the, the company that I would, I would suppose would actually put, you know, user friendliness and accessibility first and foremost, but their, their method of, of whatever they're, they're calling, you know, getting people together and being friendly and accessible is so different from, from what I think, um, means friendly and accessible and easy. Do you, I wonder, I wonder how much of that's being impacted by, uh, they are pretty isolated from third parties. I feel like that's fairly safe to say. And I think that there's a lot of uh, Microsoft and Sony are not at all isolated from third parties. And I think it's kind of that isolation that um, gives Patrick what he wants, that good-naturedness, this non-exploitativeness. But it's also right. kind of not having those outside feedback that kind of isn't, what, pushing them towards a more user-friendly, uh, uh, or just kind of giving them, I guess, the motivation, be it good or bad motivation, to kind of uh, conform to what's out there. It feels like Nintendo are forever a decade behind other companies. Um, do you think that's due to their more insular way of thinking and at this point can they ever really get back on that like forward foot and and build up to a, a more future thinking perspective well, i think I mean, it just, it just happened like the we the we just happened like i think it's easy to forget because a lot of people the we did not cater to core gamers in the way that core gamers wanted but, you know, the Wii was a dominant force. It sold over 100 million units. So the idea that Nintendo is suddenly non-relevant because they've had one misstep, I think, is a frustrating way to look or to uh, displace what the company has accomplished with two revolutionary platforms that have completely impacted the way games are designed and created uh, on all the other platforms. Um, the Wii and DS were not that long ago. Um, and, you know, a, a company that takes risks... Uh, like Nintendo that aren't that calculated uh, is inevitably going to, you know, run afoul of that. So I, I don't, it's just, it takes a long time for a new platform to come along. And I think Nintendo also is guilty of not moving fast enough and aggressive enough 
uh, in implementing changes and reacting. But if you stri- if you if you had a company like Nintendo uh, being more aggressive, would they suddenly no longer be Nintendo? Because mm. the reason they are who they are is because they are thoughtful and contemplative and slow, and yeah. that's why they're frustrating. So, you know, it's 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 hard to say without you know having a, a more a better understanding of the internal workings of the company. Well, we've uh, reached our allotted hour, so I think we should leave it there. But that's uh, been fascinating conversation between you all. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting yeah. us. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. He's pretty hot with the beard, too. I just want to point yeah. that out. Like, it's pretty hot over there. Well, I knew you had, like, a, a big bushy hair, so I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining, like, big bushy hair and then yep. a huge bushy beard. It's a, it's it's a, a symmetry beard. there. It's, uh, it's, but it's, it's coming together. I'm trying to keep it uh, kept. Like, it's, uh, I'm trying to keep it all neat. Um, yeah. we, are, we are going wildly off topic uh, yes. for, for Mr. <laughs> yes, Robert. Yes, we are. That's fine. You're, you're being a terrible special. moderator right now. You have to, you have to <laughs> we haven't started properly Bring it in, yet. Bring it in buddy. Fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, you know, beer talk's fascinating. I, I got one myself. It's uh, not as good as yours, but uh, <laughs> I mean, anyway. Kevin Van Ord has had a beard since I've ever known him. He's a beard man, really. He's a bearded imagine, man. Yeah, I can't even imagine not having it. Um, I would feel so naked. I would, I would I, just feel gross and disgusting and twelve years old. I can see that. Yeah, I, I think the problem is that once you've gone past a few months, that shaving it off when everybody else looks at you. It's like there's a completely different person there now. Like well, you're not you is... anymore. Like your identity's embedded in the beard. And, and and the issue is it's like once you've really invested in the beard, like it gets itchy coming in. So it's like mm. if you've already got it grown in, you're past the itch. Mm. Yeah. You don't have to go through that again. I'm terrible with my top lip. I get terrible spots and lashes there if I start trying to grow up the top lip.